Dead Headspace. I'm your host, Patrick R. McDonough, joined by my co-host, Brennan LaFaro. Say hi, Brennan. Hello, everyone. And today we are joined by editor, author, and many, many more things. L. Turfitt, say hi, L. Hi, L. <laughs> and this is a fun one because we get to talk to uh, another team member of Deadhead Reviews. For those that are new to the program, Deadhead Reviews is a review platform run by myself, L. Turbot, and Ellen Afigliano. Let's start with the base question, L. What got you into horror? Um, so as a kid, I was actually terrified of everything. But uh, my brothers kind of forced me to watch whatever games they were playing. They were playing Resident Evil, um, a board game called Atmosphere. Um, and they'd make me sit in the room with them. Um, so, and then as I got older, I kind of started, you know, I picked up a Goosebumps book, I picked up a point horror books. Um, and then the first, like, horror film I sat through was The Others. And then just watched that and went, well, that wasn't that scary. But I want something that will actually scare me. Um, I've been looking for some of that ever since, really. That was a creepy movie. I I don't know if that was uh, the twist that that was uh, common for a lot of movies before it. But when you find out what's actually happening in that movie, good God. I think it kind of, it, I, was, I think I was about 11, 12, and it blew my mind. <laughs> and I remember my friends, my friends jumped when like a candle got blown out and they were like covering their eyes. And I'm just sitting there like, that is amazing. <laughs> um, I can't remember where that took place, but I feel like it wasn't in America. Do Do you remember where it was? I can't remember. I know it was, was it Nicole Kidman? It, it was, yeah. I it feel like in... it might have been Britain, possibly. I feel like it was, yeah, I feel it was Britain too. And I, I'd be guessing at the year, but I think it was around 97 or so. It was within a few years of The Sixth Sense. And, you know, maybe I'm misremembering just because of the age I was around then. In uh, 97, I'd have been 12. Um, but I, I do feel like that whole need for a twist kind of took off after, you know, that period in movies. Um and now I'm like, you know, beating myself over the head. I'm like, was that prevalent? And I just didn't notice it before The Sixth Sense? Or did that, you know, did that movie come out and every other filmmaker said, oh, shit, now I've got to do that, too, uh, in order to kind of gain that audience? I just seen Patrick's background change. That's awesome. Um, yeah, The Others was 2001. But I okay. think you're right. I think Sixth Sense kind of created a wave of twists in stories. But I think ghost stories are built for that as well. Um, and I didn't actually see The Sixth Sense until I was at university. Um, and I was the only one in the class who hadn't seen it because we did um, horror, uh, Hollywood horror. So Sixth Sense was one of the films we watched. And the lecturer was like, um, has anyone here not seen it? I was the only one put my hand up. And she was like, I won't spoil the ending then. I know the ending. Who doesn't know it at this point? The film's been out like 15 years. The, uh, the the spoiler and uh, the spoiler warning on the ending on that one definitely had a, a short shelf life. I mean, you kind of you had to see that or somebody was going to tell you and it was, you know, it definitely makes for a more interesting, you know, first hour, hour and a half of the movie. But it's there's no substitute for seeing it for the first time, you know, having that reveal. If you're like me, I don't know about you guys, but I am 
absurdly bad at figuring out twists and reveals and things where there are clues sprinkled throughout the the film and i'm supposed to you know put two and two together um and i kind of always look at that where if I, I like the notion that if, uh, you know, if there's a, a twist, like the rest of the story needs to be done well, you know, as well. But you can't just rely on the twist. But at the same time, I always feel like if I can figure it out, you made it way too obvious. You beat the audience over the head with it. Yeah. What, I'm, what I'm about you guys? Are you more clever than I am? <laughs> I can't. I, I'm terrible at working them out. Um, Sometimes I... I can work it out and then it makes me feel really good because I'm like, yes, I worked it. I got it. Um, but it's a big reason why I don't really write like crime and thrillers because I can't see it in someone else's work. I don't think I'd be very good at plotting it in my own with crimes know. as well, where you've got to connect every single little dot. Yeah. I'm kind of with you guys. Like, uh, I remember when I saw saw for the first time and one of my, after we watched it, when Tobin Bell's character stands up, I'm like, holy shit. One of my friends was like, saw that coming. I'm like, get the fuck out of here. Are you kidding me? Are you serious? Watch, watching films with Rich is like that. And he'll try and like guess things as well. Yeah. So if I'm watching something with him that I've seen and he hasn't, I've really got to have like a really good poker face to not be like, yeah, you got it. I'm just like, <laughs> I'm not telling you. I'm not telling you. That's the interesting about talking to writers about movies and, and uh, shows. Uh, like when uh, – sorry to beat a dead horse, but like Game of Thrones Season 8, uh, I was looking at it through the eyes of a writer. I'm like, why would this not have a closed-off ending, some kind of satisfaction? Like uh, do you guys experience that with writer friends compared to non-writer friends and, and maybe movies or – or shows that they they pick up on things because they create stories for fun compared to the ones that don't. Yeah, I think sometimes I do. Like sometimes, um, like if I'm watching a film, my dad will be rich or whatever. Um, I feel like sometimes they might get a little bit more enjoyment out of it, whereas <laughs> I'm that little bit more critical. Um, like there's no like rich can watch all the terrible like Sharknados or Mega Shark or any of those sci-fi channel films and sometimes enjoying it and sometimes I'm just like I can't the dialogue is just it's just terrible um and I think as well when I went to university like there was a difference um so when I did creative writing uh the uh, like the girls who weren't doing creative writing all loved Twilight girls who were doing creative writing all seemed to hate it which was really <laughs> interesting um because i think like all of us had been writing as like teenagers and stuff and and trying to learn how to write then and then going to study it um and i think even when you start writing at a young age you develop that critical eye yeah um, well, absolutely what did you go to university for uh i did creative writing and american studies that's interesting so what was your experience like did did you meet anyone that you became friends with or pen pals with, or if that's even a thing anymore? Um, yeah, like I, I haven't spoken to them for ages, but re- I made really good friends at university. Um, the, the creative, uh, the girls who I did creative writing with were all amazing. Um, my friend who I did American studies with Hannah, she went out to Kansas during my third year. Cause if you do American studies, you get to go and study for a year in America, hmm. unless you're doing joint which is what I was doing. 
So like all my American cities friends disappeared in the third year. Um, and I was just stuck, uh, at, at Hull, which is up in the north of England. So basically if it's, it's Winterfell is mm. the best way I can describe it. It's I've heard literally that. in the winter. It's just like, it's snow everywhere. Lexi, um, author Lexi Shuns told me that that's where, that's where he's, you know, from, I believe his accent's northern. Yeah. And he said it's Winterfell. I, um, I've noticed talking to people from the UK, all mainly England and, and now Wales, thanks to you, is, uh, we stole a lot of town names from you, like Hull, or you mentioned a town named Margate, which I'm in New Jersey. Margate's right near me. Uh, Hull is a place in, it could be other states, but Massachusetts is uh, a beach town where I almost drowned when I was 12 with my sister, and I always associate that as hell because I, again, almost died there. And I just find it interesting uh, that there's stolen names about everything like Plymouth that's a port in England uh as a now as an editor um we can go back and break it down uh how you got started in that but do you see things from let's say American writers that you notice that's kind of either one ignorant to global markets to um that maybe is super noticeable. Can you spot an English or a Welsh or name any other European writer over an American for the most part? Um, I think with English speaking countries, um, yeah, you can spot American writers versus British writers. Um, so two of my best club, well, I say best, you know, the ones who come to me all the time, um, S.H. Cooper and J.S.Q. So Sarah lives in Florida joe lives in south england you can definitely see the difference um even obviously there's a lot of things that are spelled differently as well um but even just turns of phrase like i'll switch my word to american english just so i can double check stuff because obviously if i'm looking at color we have a u in it you guys don't theater is spelled different um really basic words like that but even beyond that, like when I'm um, critique, like when I'm getting critiques of people, you can tell who is American because normally the American critiquers will point out things as wrong that aren't wrong. Whereas um, British or whatever other critiquers will maybe have a tendency to look stuff up first. Um, so I think, what was it the other day? I said something about in the bay and I, all the American critiquers were like, no, it's by the bay or all this. And it's not in. So even like the way you use different words and stuff is a, is a massive difference between American and British. Okay. I, like I find it really interesting because I love seeing the differences. Um, so like you said, New Jersey, you live in New Jersey. Jersey is an island off the coast of England. Hmm. Um, you do. The um, so I think it comes from people just naming it after their their hometowns when they arrive there. So like in Australia, you've got New South Wales, Perth is um, in Scotland, places like that. But um, you guys say like Edinburgh, you say it differently. So you have to like adjust your pronunciation depending on where you're speaking about. 
Edinburgh in Scotland or somewhere like when you guys say because how do you, you guys say it like Edinburgh uh, it depends I guess what part of the country I just straight up don't say it because I know I'm going to be wrong <laughs> I, one of my favourite things to do is if you're on YouTube there's like Amer- Americans trying to pronounce British place names Americans trying to pronounce Welsh words that is that- always really fun that one's tough for me because you and you you've said words uh, that I just feel like I would butcher, <laughs> even after you tell me. Like, uh, how, what's that word? Catch, quatch, kutch, kutch, kutch. Yeah, kutch, which is uh, basically a hug. Yeah, it's so. Um, the literal translation is a safe place. Oh, that's so nice. the idea is, um, yeah, a kutch is a bit more than a hug. It's more meaningful. Um, there's a saying that only the like, only the Welsh can cutch. Like everyone can hug, but only the Welsh can cutch. Um, yeah. So if you speak to a Welsh person, so I'm going to give you a hug. They'll say no. Give me a cutch. I uh, ha- have you guys read The Giver? Yes. No. Oh, it's it's a great book. Um, it's a court. It's there's four of them, but the they're in the same universe, but they're not all directly connected. The Giver is basically the story where it's this through the eyes of this. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Brennan. A 12 year old boy. He is in a world where it's literally like black and white. You take your pills. Um, I forget what time of the day. Everything's routine. Words are precise. Um, you say what you mean. You don't say I'm starving to um, indicate that you're hungry. And that's an example from the book where the parents say you're not actually starving. And I forget exactly what they say, but when you reach the age of 12, or I think it's 12, you are assigned a job that you're going to have forever. Some women are birthers, some guys are whatever, but there's one person that holds all the information of what the world was like before everything. Like, there's no pain because uh, I think there's, like, medication for that, but basically – there's one person called the giver and he's at the point in his uh, life where he needs to pass that knowledge on to someone. And that's this 12 year, that's this main character. And slowly, because right. it's, it's a lot to take in slowly, he can see images of this like sled, for example, and he, he sees snow and he's like so fascinated. He sees colors. He, he can't, t- he, he can tell his friends and mom and dad about it. doesn't matter because they don't know what that is. I'm definitely getting off track because I love that story, so I got lost in it. But uh, my only point of bringing this up was uh, the precision of um, words. It's a point that the parents try to make to the son, and I think that, at least from my experience in America, I can't speak for other parts of the world, like the word love, it just... I With, like, my wife or my friends, yeah, I know it means... They mean it when they say it, but I feel like people mis- like misuse or overuse words that shouldn't mean a lot, like love or hate, for example. Um, I'm just curious if, in your editing experience or reading experience, if you've if you've noticed that as a trend with people. Um, I wouldn't think so. Like, I think writers are very much aware of the value of words. Um, I. I have noticed, like, speaking to you and Alan or, you know, speaking to people on social media, I do think Americans are a lot more liberal with the words they use than 
um, British people are. Mm. So, like, even stuff like, yeah, saying I love you, you guys seem much more free with that than, like, we would over here. Um, and I think it's kind of, I've adapted some of that, I've adopted some of that as well. Um, even the way, like, I've noticed Americans, you all, like, you guys, you'll all say brother. Yeah, I, I say that a lot, and I'm going to be honest, not sure where I, why I started. <laughs> Randy Macho Man Savage, I bet. I was never into wrestling. <laughs> no, I never got into wrestling. I uh, I know a lot of friends growing up, even in preschool. I remember a friend just had all these wrestling action figures to ring. I'm like, uh, I want to play Sega Genesis. Like, fuck this. Oh, my brother's. My brothers used to practice their wrestling moves on me, so <laughs> that's my most experience with wrestling is them holding their arm out and going, come here, run at me, run at me. No, <laughs> just run at me. And then the other one kind of, yeah, grabbing me and just throwing me at the other one. So that was always fun because yeah. they're um, five years older than me. So the time they were getting into wrestling, it was very easy to just pick me up and just throw me around. Um, so, yeah, that was always fun. So let's talk about your basically your all-around package of editing services, uh, beta reading. Can you break all that down for us? Yeah, so um, probably about not long before I joined Deadheads last year, um, I set up a beta reading service on Fiverr, and I started doing it. Um, did really well with it. Loads of work. I think it was one point where I was literally, I wasn't doing my own writing for ages because I was just working, 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 saving up money because we got, went to Disneyland Paris in November. So like all that money was, I was saving up. Um, but from speaking to different people through doing that, what the feedback I got was that it was more editing than better reading. So, or beta or however you say it. Um, so that's when I kind of I set up my own website during lockdown. I separated the fiber gigs, and um, so I've now got a beta reading and an editing gig. So the beta reading gig now is um, I'll make a few inline comments. Um, I'll give a reader report that just has comments on like characters, world building, if that's needed, or plot description. Whereas the editing is more what I was doing before, where it was. Um, you know, going through checking spelling, checking grammar, checking the flow, whether or not it it flows well, that sort of thing. Um, yeah, and it's been really good. I mean, I've done three books for S.H. Cooper now. Um, I've done partial full novels through Fiverr before. Um, I've done loads of short stories for JSQ. Um, and it's it's really good. Like, it's something I really enjoy. Um, and obviously I do the editing for Deadheads as well. So that's basically just going through the reviews or the articles and um, just check again, checking for grammar, spelling, flow, making sure it all reads well. Um, but to be fair, you guys make it, the team make it really easy for that because it, the, the most I do is take out maybe a couple of extra bats on stuff. You know, I think the team overall, like, they all write really well. So, yeah. yeah, that bit's easy. Those are all my that's, by the way, so I apologize. You probably got a whole bag uh, it's full, over there. <laughs> it's, it's probably the thing I I do most common through across the board. And it's one thing that every single writer I speak to, I'm like, 
stop using that. Stop. <laughs> just delete it. Read the sentence. If it makes sense without the word that, it can be deleted. I definitely want to come back to, I, I read a, an article um, uh, or an essay or whatever you would call it that you wrote about killer words and filler words. And I'd love to talk about that. But before we uh, go in that direction, um, one of my follow-up questions for your editing services, you already kind of took it on. I think it was so important, both from um, a new author's perspective, but also from uh, somebody who's being asked to beta read about what those expectations are. Um, you know, both if I send something off and ask somebody out of the, uh, you know, whether I'm paying them or out of the goodness of their heart, uh, asking the beta read, like what I can reasonably expect that to entail versus editing. Um, and I wonder if you could expand, you know, for new writers on the different types of editing, because people kind of seeking out those services can find that, you know, the price range for editing can is it's a big, big, big range. Um, so if, if you could take us kind of through the difference between line editing and other different types of services, people might want to enlist for stories versus novels. Yeah. So line editing is like, um, so you've got developmental copy and line editing. Um, developmental is like a big picture editing. So it's looking at the plot. It's looking at um, sort of other plot holes. Is there anything you see with the characters? Um, that sort of thing. Line editing is sort of going through checking the spelling, grammar, um, you know, make it like, yeah, making sure words flow, that sort of thing. Um, whereas copy editing is that but it's even more in-depth. So copy editing will require um, check-in. It's, it's almost like a more in-depth version if you combine, this is my understanding of it anyway, um, if you combine developmental and line editing. So with copy editing, you have to, you normally have to also check, like if you're writing historical fiction, the copy editor will check historical facts. Um the copy, uh, proofreading as well is, is different again because proofreading will be sort of the next stage before it's actually published. So checking format and errors, stuff like that. Um, yeah, copy editing is probably the most, um, from what I've seen, it tends to be the most expensive because it's the most, um, time consuming. It's the one where you would be checking, um, sort of names, spellings or place names if, you had a British author who was writing something set in America or vice versa, you check, does that actually make sense? Are they using the right um, dialogue for a British character? Um, I think it's I think it's the copy editor as well. So like if you have a separate publisher in the UK and the US, they might change the spelling of words or they might change the use of words um, to match. So they'll change jumper to sweater things like that um which if i'm editing and yeah it's a character american writing a british character or british person writing an american character i'll check for those things as well um even though what i do is more like line editing um but yeah i just try and do the best uh that i can sort of if that makes sense like someone's paying for it um I'm self-taught as well, so I don't currently have the qualifications to say, 
hey, yeah, I'm an expert at this. Um, but like with the better reason, that was one approach I took. I kind of went above and beyond because I saw it as people are paying me for something that you could probably get for free. But I will say with better reading, if the be- I think one of the best things you can do with better reading is think that, right, if I'm asking someone to do this, maybe you ask it for as an exchange. Like, oh, if you can read this story for me, I can read one of yours, blah, blah, blah. If you're not paying for it, um, I've seen authors have said that they, they'll send their better readers copies of the book once it's published, um, or buy them a little gift or something like that. So it's not like something I'll say you don't have to charge for it at all, but there should be some sort of investment, whether it's your time, kind of an ex, yeah, an exchange of services or whatever it is. Yeah, I might have rambled a bit there, but. No, no, that's all good. And, um, you know, when we post the episode, I, I definitely want to kind of make it clear that, um, one of one of one of the target audience points on on this, especially this aspect of the conversation, is basically people getting into this. And you know, the whole reason that I uh, accepted Patrick's oh so generous invitation to co-host this show was so that I could ask people questions that I bet directly benefit from. Um, but people who are kind of new to writing, uh, who you know have one foot in the door, but they're not a hundred percent sure what to do. So I mean, in that vein. You see, and I'm not putting myself in this camp, but you see a lot of people who are opposed to editing, and some of that could definitely be the price tag, and that could be directly related to they don't understand, you know, like you said, what how much work a copy edit would entail. Really kind of pouring over that manuscript line by line, word by word, uh, you know, because I would imagine that, you know, looking for spelling errors and uh, checking to see how it flows, like you're not doing that in one fell swoop. You can't read a sentence once and say, I've got everything. Um, again, that's my imagination. I don't edit. So I, you know, would have other people do that. Um, but for, you know, obviously we want people to enlist the services of, uh, El Turpet if they are looking for an editor. But if they were to go in another direction, can you recommend things they should look for? in an editor or steer away from as red flags? Um, so I, one thing I'll say is if, if people are looking at the traditional publishing route, like getting an agent, they don't need a professional editor. They need, they need feedback. Every writer needs feedback of some sort. Um, whether it's a writing group or online or whatever it is, it's the same it's the same if you're looking to submit short stories to places. You don't need, you can, of course, because you can, if you want to invest that, you can. But um, you don't need a professional editor for that because that will get edited. That will all be handled. Traditional publishing, the books go through such a, they go through like multiple stages of editing. If you're looking to self-publish, get an editor. Invest in that. You are looking, you're putting yourself out there. Um, and some people think, oh, I'm fine. I can self edit. I would never ever just rely on my own opinion. Um, I have my own sort of channels, if that makes sense. So I'm on the website Scribbafile, which is where you critique other people's work and you get feedback on it. That's how I get mine done. But I, you know, you have to critique so many before you can post your own. Um, so you have to get like five karma points to post one 
extract or chapter or whatever it is. Um, but I would never ever look at a piece of work and go, oh, well, I'm the only person who's seen this. It's perfect. Because there's stuff that I've sent to friends who have looked at it and gone, oh, hang on, this doesn't make sense. And it's something that I've read the story five or six times and wouldn't have picked up on. Um, so, yeah. In terms of red flags, I'm not entirely sure. Um, always check the prices because, you know, there's um, society. So in the UK, you've got a society of proofreaders and editors. Might be the other way around. Um, but they have, like, you know, details of what the minimum pricing is that editors charge. Um, so I think um, a lot of editors will charge over that because they're more experienced, they're more qualified, they might be quicker. Um, yeah, I would say just, I like, I offer a sample as reading as well. So if people want to send me a 500 word sample, because I think that gives enough that I can say, um, I can, I can use it. It doesn't take me too long to do 500 words, but it gives the author, the writer, an idea of what I can do. It also, this hasn't happened yet, but it also means that if they've sent me something and I can't find a single error in it, then do they actually need a professional editor or do they just need better reading or feedback or critiquing or something else? Um, but I think what you find most times that once that feedback comes back, um, you know, I might send it back to someone and they might then take that advice from the 500 word sample, apply it to the rest of the manuscript before they send it to me. Or they might just send me the rest of the manuscript. Either way is fine. But I think as well that feedback, whatever form it comes in, whether it's editing or critiquing or better reading, can help you in future projects as well. So it's not just this only applies to this one single story that I've submitted. It's, oh, hang on, this is picked up, but this is something that I do a lot. Can I change that for the next story I do or the next book? Um, but yeah, that's one thing I will say about it. If you're going down the traditional publishing route, if you're looking at agents, you don't need professional editing. If you're self-publishing, maybe if you go into indie publishers, even though they have their own editors, um, I think indie publishers probably want something that's more polished already. Um, I don't know. This probably something to ask uh, uh, ask one of them but I think yeah definitely self-publishing hire an editor anything else just make sure you get the feedback before you submit your work okay cool uh, that's great advice there and to piggyback on this whole section what advice uh, do you have for also new writers because what I've seen with it happens all the time from the time I started writing which I was in this camp until I realized like it's not personal to now I see all the time people, you know, posting negative reviews and getting all upset about it or people just getting all mad and it's ruining their day, which in my opinion, uh, I don't get it. Uh, because as all three of us know, reviews aren't meant for anyone, but potential readers, but what do you have for advice for new writers about negative comments or quote unquote negative comments, ones that don't favor their work for one reason or another? Don't read reviews. Um, <laughs> that's a great, like, that's a great comment. I know, I, I know it's hard because I, 
like and I've 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 gone to check reviews of books I've edited and then seen a negative review and just been like, well, that's ridiculous because this book is amazing. It's the best thing ever. But <laughs> and you know I've done it like I for anthologies I've been in I've gone back to check reviews and stuff. Um, but I think what my big idea is if you have someone you trust. Ask them to check reviews on your book. Ask them to go through it um, and literally just give you the positive ones. Because I think, uh, as well as that, as a reviewer, there's a difference between me saying, oh my God, this book is terrible. I would never, ever recommend it to everyone. Um, Why did they even bother picking up a pen? I wouldn't say something like that. That is harsh because at the end of the day, as much as we say authors shouldn't check reviews, authors do check reviews. And, but there's a difference between saying that and saying, look, this book wasn't for me. The writing wasn't great. Um, there were typos or there were spelling errors or whatever it is. There's a difference between being construct, like explaining why you disliked a book compared to just saying, I hated this book. Um, but yeah, authors just take a step back. You know, one, one star review on Amazon isn't going to hurt you. Same as one two star, three star reviews on Goodreads. Three stars means you liked it. It's not a bad review. If so, if a three star book isn't saying this book is terrible, it's saying I liked it. It just wasn't amazing. Um, there's books I've read that like I didn't think were very good, and sometimes on my blog, this hasn't happened for a while because I've had a really good streak with books, but. You know, sometimes I write little, like, ranty reviews on my blog because I'm just like, you know, this book really frustrated me. But I don't, I wouldn't tag the author in that. Reviewers stop tagging authors in negative reviews. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't tag the author in a review that isn't a hundred percent glowing. But at the same time, like, not every review I write is a hundred percent glowing. Um, you know, this, not every book you read is going to be a five star. Not every book someone writes is going to be a five star. I might read a book and put it at three stars and then decide I'm gonna, I'm still going to read stuff from that author because um, you see something in it that you think, okay, well, they might need a bit of development. You know, self-publishing, there's always going to be errors that slip through the cracks. Um, but yeah, if you are self-publishing it if you or if you are publishing it through an indie publisher or whatever it is, just don't read reviews. I don't think Stephen King or Anne Rice or Joe Hill sit there combing Goodreads looking at the people who have criticised their books. <laughs> they don't, and there's no need to. And what annoys me as well is authors saying, well, this review should be constructive. Why? You know, what one, if one reviewer says details, like gives a constructive review, that's, that's not the point for constructive criticism. The point for constructive criticism is before the book is published. Mm. Once it's published and out in the world, it's, you have to let it go. Yeah, because uh, what it comes down to is pe- other people's opinion. I mean, I already thought about this, too, and I agree with you. Whenever I get a published book right now, obviously things could change. My mindset is don't read a single review unless, like, someone tags you in, on Twitter and it's a friend. Then I'll check it out because otherwise – I don't know about you, too, but with me, things sit in my head for a long time, and I'm like, I could be using this time to – Talk with my friends, could be with my family, could be writing or reading. Like, it's wasted energy in my eyes. What about you, Brian? What, what do you think of all this? 
Um, the, the biggest thing that kind of jumps out to me is, you know, at first I was almost not going to disagree with you about the constructive criticism thing. Um, but kind of just say, oh, you know, I think it's, it's good to put something positive. And then I realized that what I'm thinking of is not necessarily constructive criticism or, um, construction at all, because I don't necessarily have the expertise to read a book and say, okay, here are the five things that would make this thing a masterpiece. Um, I, I don't have, I don't have the expertise or the arrogance to put up a review that says that. What my mind was jumping to was basically putting forth positive highlights, um, and saying, I didn't care for this book or it wasn't for me. It didn't resonate with me, you know, choose your, you know, cliched phrase, but saying, here's who would like it. Or if you are interested in this, here's what's done well, here's what's strong. And I've found there, there are not really a lot of books that I've read and reviewed in the last, you know, X number of months slash years that have no redeeming qualities that I can't find something to say, this didn't work for me, but if you're interested in it, here's, here's what I liked i guess here's what i would put forth as the strong points of this story yeah i completely agree with that and i i think there's something that some people forget as well it's just because you didn't like a book doesn't mean that it's not going to be like i've seen books on goodreads that someone has wrote it two or three stars and i've gone i need to read that book um there's books that you know guys in the team rate three three stars or three and a half stars and i've seen what they disliked about it and it might be exactly what i like i think that's important to remember as well even a so-called negative review could sell another reader on that book but it just means that you know if if i follow someone who i know they're reading interest like mine if they don't dislike the book i probably wouldn't like it but the people i'm friends with on goodreads or on twitter you know they we don't have the exact same taste um and I think you're right. I think it is important to say, you know, here's some positives. This is why someone else might like it. Um, but I personally didn't care for this aspect or that aspect. Um, I don't think any review needs to be depend on the book. I don't think any, like, a lot of the times a review doesn't have to be completely and utterly negative. Unless it is, like, you know, some of these, some of these authors put out books that are just an excuse to write a fantasy like their own special fantasy and it's full of graphic descriptions of whatever in which case yeah you know some people self-publish books that should never see the light of day <laughs> um agree and to be honest like that's on them then if they've put it out into the world that's on them but even then there's probably still gonna be one slight small point in it that someone will like yeah no absolutely yeah um and i i, I i'm going to kick myself because I can't think of who to attribute this to, but I remember uh, whether it was somebody we talked to or somebody on a different podcast um, talking about um, basically writing characters who maybe, you know, have tones of, of racism about them. Um, th that is the character is racist. Um, not, not that, you know, the book is written in a way that's offensive, but, you know, characters that have undesirable traits. And the person I'm thinking of basically said, 
you know, you're going to see that stuff worked into uh, stories, especially horror, where we kind of dissect the worst of the worst and, you know, um, people who are just genuinely not good people. It's when you can tell that the views are no longer that of the character and you can tell that they are that of the author, um, that you could cross that line from uh, either constructive criticism or here's who I think would like this book to fuck this guy. Because let's face yeah. it, it's a guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. I mean... No. Wait, it's a white when guy. I read... That's all I want to say. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, I'll go when ahead. I, when I read um, The Fourth Hall by uh, Evie Hunt... Um, uh, Knight. That, Knight, that's... Why am I thinking Hunt? Um, that book... Evie Hunt. That's the... Yeah, that's why right, Evie Hunt. Yeah, yeah, Evie Knight, Evie Hunt. Gotcha. And I've just... I've Two two of her books I've just listened to on Audible. CB Hunt. Yeah, full four. If that book was written by a white guy, I would have thrown it across the room. As it was, it's probably I read it in February and it's still one of the most powerful books I've read this year. Um and I was I invited to the virtual launch of that as well. And that book is amazing, but it's brutal. And yes, if that had been written by a white guy, my reaction to it would have been extremely different. Um, which is why as well that I disagree with people who say, um, oh, well, I, d- I don't care about this author's race or sexuality or whether they're male. Or I don't care. It's just good writing. It's like, yeah, but where they come from in their life is going to affect how they write certain things. I can't write, you know, I can't write about um, black characters in the American South. Um I don't tend to use slurs in my writing. Um, and I think there's a difference between a woman writing a book that uses the words whore and slut compared to if a guy wrote a book like that and used those words very frequently. Can you tell us um, a little bit about that book, The Fourth Whore, by Evie Knight? Yes. it's So it's about um, Lilith. Uh, as in the first woman, Lilith, mm-hmm. slash the first demon, slash the mother of monsters, whatever mythology you're looking at, um, who was supposed to be the first wife of Adam. So um, Evie Knight takes that story. Um, it's present day. There's a young girl, Kenzie, um, who is, um, you know, she's struggling for money she's got a drug addict mother um she's sleeping with a landlord to try and starve off eviction um and it's basically lilith goes around recruiting the four whores of the apocalypse um but you know there's a look at sex work in there there's a look at um how people you know um family family planning clinics i think you call it in the u.s um you know abortions and stuff like that uh it takes a jab at the far right it takes a jab at men it takes a jab at these different aspects of society that look at women and just see them as you know things to obey men and breed babies and that's all they're good for um but it was there's a strange disease that starts spreading around the world and the American president is an absolute incompetent turd. And reading this at the end of February, beginning of March, was very scary. 
but it was like it was weird it was like is this is this a massive marketing campaign um but yeah it's a really good book it's really powerful and like i came out of that with i think one thing that even Knight said about my review was that um it got the message that the end of the book is hopeful um there's a lot of brutality before it but it's kind of um yeah i you got my interest. I like that part about the U.S. president, too. Yeah, I'll, I'll back that up. I read that in probably around the same time, February, March. Um, and it's I, – I hesitate to say it's a quick read. It's a short book. It's either under 200 or you know right around that mark. Um, but at the same time, it's so heavy that it's it's one that the way I approached it is I read a chapter or two a day. And then I said, OK, I've got to I've got to sit back and digest this before I can go any further. I can't imagine having read that in like, you know, one sitting or one and two one or two days. Um, but it's you know, it kind of uh, both both what you were saying, Al, and that book remind me a little bit of uh, V Castro. And we've had this conversation both with her and you know on different episodes about how you know with um evie knight's book and with v castro's books she's the only person who could have told that story and have it come across with that depth and that sincerity um you know i'm thinking of like the opening scene which i won't spoil the opening chapter of the fourth whore and if a guy wrote that, again, that's the point where you throw the book across the room and say, this is not empowering at all. This is exploitation. Um, and with Castro's books, the way they are so focused around Latin culture, um, she's the only person who could have written that. Um, and again, to kind of piggyback, I guess, off one of your points, you said, I don't use slurs in my books and that's fair um with you know certain exceptions i suppose you know people who are our general age the use of slurs in public is not quite as prevalent as it would have been in say the 1960s and that's certainly not to say it doesn't happen because it absolutely does but the example i'm thinking of is, you know, Joe Lansdale is a guy who tends to be on the right side of history, somebody who is very accepting um, and very anti-racism. But you see certain words pop up in his books, and they're usually written from that experience of somebody who lived through the 1960s in places like Texas and, you know, is drawing from the experience of what it felt like to see you know, hateful people throw words like that at, you know, people they considered less and basically use that as a storytelling device. Um, and, I, and I think you do definitely see people who don't have, you know, that upfront experience who throw it in there for shock value. And I would agree that's that's not going to see the light of day in my writing. And I don't I think it's going to come across as very insincere and, again, just thrown in there for shock value if that's what it's for. And it'll join that pile of books, that metaphorical pile of books we've talked about that's now been tossed across the room. Yeah. And um, I've seen the argument as well that people are saying, like, oh, well, if writers only wrote from their own experience, um, it would be really boring. But it's like there's a difference between. So I've always taken write what you know to me 
not to mean write about your own life. It means take your own experiences and apply them to your characters you're writing. If I'm writing a second world fantasy, I don't know what it's like to stand in front of a dragon and have it, you know, trying to breathe fire on me, but I know what it's like to be scared. Um, I know what it's like to, you know, um, so I don't know if you've seen uh, S.H. Cooper's young adult fantasy, Night's Daughter. Um, you know, she doesn't know what it's like to be a girl in a fantasy world whose father gets kidnapped, but she knows what it's like to be scared for your family. Um, and like that book resonated with me as well because in that she has two brothers she has who um their dynamic felt very real to me because I could relate to it in terms of my own two brothers but it's about a young girl growing up in a world where women aren't necessarily allowed to do everything they want um where they, there are certain expectations but it still it, it doesn't rely too heavily on that idea but it's still there and it still feels relatable and real. It's a second world fantasy, but it works because you can identify with that character. Um, you know, it's, and this is the thing is like, you know, write what you know means that we need more stuff where everyone is reflected in it so that everyone can identify with the character. Everyone can see themselves, even if it is a fantasy that has looks on the surface that has no relation to our world. Um, and it's another thing I don't understand is people saying they can't connect to characters who are different to them, who are different gender, different race, different sexuality. It's like, if you can't, I said this on the other day on Twitter, if you can't connect to a character like that, that means you lack empathy. You lack compassion. Because, like, you know, everyone knows what it's like to be scared. Everyone knows what it's like to be happy. If you can't connect to a character going through something that's slightly different to your own life, that's your problem. That's not the writer's problem. Surface level, uh, which is what racism is in my eyes. It's surface level. It's like meaning you see someone that's got different shaped eyes or different skin color, and you're like, I don't like them. And I never understood that. And I know it's because of the environment I grew up in. I was raised around dominantly Irish, Italians, Portuguese for races but my dad and mom were really accepting of everyone and that's how i was raised i get that it would be different if my mom and dad were hateful but i don't know nowadays like we all talk to each other and me and brendan have talked with a lot of people throughout the world like you're in in south wales we're in america um it sounds like we have a lot of similar experiences in life Obviously, there's variations, but, like, at the heart of it, we're all people. We all bleed. We all feel. And I'm just pretty much having a long reply to your comment about empathy. I don't get people that don't have it. Like, don't you have a heart? <laughs> don't you You see a kid cry? Don't you go, like, I want to help them? Like, you know, I, I don't get it, the people that don't have it. I, I, real quick before you reply to that, L, I want to let uh, audio listeners know that L has a microphone in front of her, and when she made that comment about um, if you uh, can't, you know, see from another point of view, you um, uh, you lack empathy. She literally dropped her microphone out of the picture. I think it was probably a cell, um, uh, a <laughs> subconscious decision, but it was it was a uh, you know perfectly timed mic drop moment. <laughs> and on that point. On that point, I want to bring it up now. Is Waden? 
Brendan texted me something that was really funny. Why don't you tell her what it was? Because it does apply to a subject I got down in my notes. Yeah, so again, for people who uh, are relying on our descriptions because they can't see video, um, Elle has a Disney, it looks like the Beauty and the Beast library in her as her background. Yeah. Um, I'm assuming <laughs> it's the background. I'm assuming you're not actually in a cartoon library from 1992 or four. Oh, no, I, I am. Oh, okay. Well, that changes everything. And, uh, you know, Patrick also has the Disney background. I have none because I can't figure out how uh, I can barely get on Skype. Um, but uh, sometimes when when Elle moves, she kind of disappears in her background. And it just reminded me of a certain movie that just came out. And I won't give spoilers, but for anybody who has seen Host, uh, whenever Elle disappears into her background, I have this certain expectation of what's going to happen next. And um, let's just say that movie's still with me after, you know, a viewing two days ago. <laughs> I need to see that so bad. It's it's rare that, like, I didn't even realize it was British, but it's rare British horror film were, like, that well-received. Um, Which is why I brought it up, because I want to talk about representation of uh, British, Welsh, even, you know, Irish, Scottish. Let's talk about all the nations in the U.K., and how you perceive a lack of representation. I hope I'm not putting words in your mouth. Based on all our conversations, I feel like that's fair to say. I think, um, so I was very honoured recently. Um, I've just finished reading the, I've actually just sent the review to you, Pat, um, Diabolica Britannica. Yep. It's probably one of the best anthologies I've read getting, recently. Getting uh, that today. Uh, after we're done talking, I'll be getting to it. Your review. It's like, um so it's it's authors from across the UK. Um but I think it's the most I've seen Welsh authors. It's very hard to find Welsh horror authors and if anyone out there does have any recommendations for that, I know Tim Levin, obviously. Um just shoot me a DM on Twitter because I would love to see more kind of that sort of Welsh horror aspect. Um so there's stories in there. One of them, the first one, Carrick Samson, is about a stone structure in Pembrokeshire but it's the story is told from his point of view his I'm calling his its point of view um about an impending doom sort of thing um there's another story later on that uses um I think it's Tim Levin's story it there was a, a village in North Wales that decades ago was um actually flooded to make a reservoir for England um I don't know if you guys have also heard there's there's like certain things in that if a, a Welsh writer writes about certain things, you know exactly what it's referencing. If a Welsh writer is writing about a some sort of landslide, it's probably referencing Aberfan. Um this although obviously there wasn't the same sort of death as there was of that, that story is um powerful in that it's talking about something in Welsh his, recent Welsh history that was very impactful. Um, but as well as that, so you've got in there Scottish authors. Um, I'm not sure if there's Irish authors or North Irish authors, but um, I think there seems to be. I think it's changing, but there seems to be a stronger American horror scene than there is British. I would ch- so StokerCon obviously was cancelled in the UK. It's now being rearranged for. January um, as Chillicon up in Scarborough, which is up 
um i don't i i i couldn't name i can name a few british horror authors off the top of my head Gemma Moore, alan baxter who's sort of british australian now um obviously you've got ginger nuts of horror based in the uk um in, up in scotland but i think but it seems to be whereas, like, obviously, you guys talk about like there's loads of horror authors living really near you, but for such a small country, we don't really have that kind of close knitness that you guys seem to have over there. Um, like I said, I think it is changing because I think the market is becoming more international than it would have been like a few years ago. Um, but I think it's because as well, like, whereas you guys seem to be able to travel uh easier like everyone everyone in america seems to drive over here you're relying on public transport and a four-hour trip in the car could take seven hours in public transport so i think that plays a part of it as well it's uh, it's um so i don't know whether i'm gonna go to chillicon but it would be quite expensive for me if i'm relying on public transport just because of the distance whereas if it was in london i could get down there for like 10 quid on the bus but yeah i don't think you see many british authors in horror fiction but um that anthology i do totally intend to check out like there's a lot of authors on there there's a couple i know like stephanie ellis um there's a couple of names i recognized there's the forward is by ramsey campbell Um, And I think that's another thing as well, is that sometimes if you don't read an author that you know of them, you may not realise they're actually British than American. Mm -hmm. I didn't realise until recently that Ramsey Campbell was British. Um, And I think that's because, obviously, once these names become a certain level of big, they kind of are semi-adopted by America, Mm. if that makes sense. Except for Clive Barker. (laughs) Yeah. I didn't know for years that he was British. He's probably my, he's yeah he's he's really good. Uh, there's a few others that I'd like to name: uh, Andrew Freudenberg, Justin Park, Matt Shaw, Laura Morrow. Um, they're all excellent. Um, the first one, there were two publishers that I first talked to when I joined the horror community. That's one British company called uh, Sinister Horror Company. I don't see them being talked about enough. They're really great. They got a lot of awesome titles. And then, oh yeah, Adam Neville too. I don't know why I didn't think of him. Yes. Yeah, he's in the anthology. Um, but the other one was Crystal Lake Publishing with uh, Joe Meinhardt leading that in South Africa. I see. They're pretty awesome. But yeah, back to the whole Welsh thing. Uh, I I know there's more. I can only name you and Tim Levin for Welsh authors on the top of my head. Yeah, so can I. <laughs> so for those that don't know, like myself, before I met you, um, I knew that you know Wales was a different country. But what is it that you notice that people don't seem to know that seems obvious to you that isn't too let's say, American authors about your country? Um, so, yeah, Wales, Scotland, England, Ireland, and Northern Ireland. Different countries. Um, Ireland isn't... Northern Ireland is part of the UK. Ireland isn't. Which I think a lot of people, in a, maybe in America, don't understand. 
um, yeah, Wales and England are usually lumped together, even by the British media. Um, a lot of the times, like, the response at the early days of the whole coronavirus shit, the statements being put out by the so-called British government were not applicable in Wales, in Scotland, in Northern Ireland. They were only applicable in England. Um, and I think it's shown the differences a lot more than anything has before. Um, there's, I think it was, um, I saw on Twitter the other day, there was a silhouette of England that was England and Wales. Mm. Um, yeah, it, it gets frustrating because I think a lot of people expect sort of England and Wales to be the same sort of country but I mean you've said it before as well Pat that you're, you're amazed at the difference in accents yeah um someone who lives 10 minutes away from me has a completely different accent because they have a Cardiff accent uh Rich lives about 45 minutes away from me by car he has a completely different accent he grew up about an hour and a half away his accent is completely different um because he unlike me he actually does have a proper Welsh accent um and like i think even a lot of when i went to university i found a lot of my english friends didn't understand why there was so much aminosity from welsh people towards english people um and it's a historic but it's also a lot of reflection in the media um if we have a rugby competition every year called the six nations mm-hmm. um so it's wales england scotland ireland france and italy if England win, you do not stop hearing about it in the national papers, on the national t- programs, whatever. If Ireland, Scotland, or, we- or Wales win, two days and then it's gone. And that's how I try to explain to my friends. Um, it sounds really nitpicky, but it's probably the best example I can think of. Um, and when I spoke to them about it, my English friends were like, oh, the English are bastards. We are bastards, aren't we? <laughs> yeah. Because they, they often don't think about Wales as a country. And, and now you've got these English media wringing their hands over um, a dinghy of refugees, uh, calling it an invasion. It's like mm. bollocks. Sitting there going, oh, my God, these people are entering our country illegally. Forgetting the fact that three months ago, what the Welsh government was saying to English people, do not come into Wales. Don't travel into Wales. You're not allowed. You will be fined. You are the shitload of English people trying to come into this country That's illegally. <laughs> because them going to the rural parts of Wales meant they were away from their built-up cities where coronavirus was taken at all. But they were also risking bringing it to rural parts of Wales where they have their little second homes. Mm. And putting strain on the infrastructure there. That's another issue as well. I could ramble about <laughs> the whole second homes thing. Um, so especially back in like the 60s and 70s, a lot of English people bought home, second homes and holiday homes in parts of Wales. Um, and that drove up the prices. So local people couldn't buy homes in local areas. Um, and they have houses now that sit there for what, six months, nine months out of the year, just empty. That's uh, similar to where I live in South Jersey. Uh, one of the towns uh, is called Margate. It's a really rich town. Uh, Margate. There's Margate, Longport, 
Venner, those are all rich places. The the homes are millions of dollars that line up the beaches. Beaches are gorgeous. Say, I'm just gonna say, I don't care. I still got my New England card, but they beat the shit out of all the New England beaches. Reason being, and I love New England, but the beaches there, you have to cut your feet open over all these jagged pieces of uh, rock and shells. To go into water that is so fucking cold that it's unbearable at times. Whereas down in the beaches I've gone to in Jersey, it's nice and sandy. It's gorgeous. The water is not too cold. That's just my opinion. But um, the situation of people from New York, parts of North Jersey, Pennsylvania... They come up to where I live, and they for the during the pandemic, they tried coming here too. So it's a similar situation, and I'm just like, what the fuck? Like, leave us alone. Let's just this is where we live. Please don't come here. I I don't want anyone getting sick, you know. And to see some of the pictures that came out when the pandemic was at its peak, um. Like the beaches that are just full of thousands of people that are pretty much shoulder to shoulder. Uh, so that's one pool in Cancun, I believe it was, where there was hundreds of people in one massive pool. I don't know. I'm kind of getting off track, but I just think from time to time that like the, the Earth is trying to tell us to just purge and fuck off. <laughs> yeah, and because uh, England opened up a lot now. You, they're declaring states of emergency in like on the beach in Bournemouth because of the amount of people there, like people just seem to be forgetting that there's still a pandemic on. There's still a risk. Um, but the point the best way to explain it to Americans is if you imagine like Wales, Scotland, and England especially as separate states, um, because you have that overarching government like you would have the federal government, but then you have you know, certain rules and regulations that Wales control themselves, Scotland control themselves. Um, yeah, this is probably the best way to describe it. But when you talk about the beaches, then Pat, as well, um, the beach by me in Penarth is mm-hmm. pebbly. It's just covered in rocks. Uh, <laughs> you wouldn't go bare feet there. The sea is the Bristol Channel, and it's, it's grey. Oh. And then you go to, like, West Wales... Um, and the Gower, and the beaches there are pure sand. They're absolutely beautiful. Love it. The sea is actually blue. Um, but even down the road, there's a Barry, which for anyone listening, if you've seen Gavin and Stacey, you'd be familiar with Barry Island. All my friends at uni were obsessed with it. They love the fact that I live near there. Um, <laughs> even the beach there, the beach there is all sand. Um, so you find that a lot of people on sunny days will go down to Barry. But there's like two roads in and out. So when it's a nice hot sunny day, you'll get stuck in traffic for like four hours mm. to go somewhere that's ten minutes down the road. Um, but yeah, um, and apparently last weekend, um, so things in Wales only recently started opening up. And my friend who lives in Barry said that last weekend it was horrendous. He said you could not have got gotten two Barry Islands on, in a car at all or on the train because everyone who jumps on the train then fills it up. We're supposed to be wearing masks here on public transport. Um, I had to get on the train last week for work. 
the train to Panath was good. It was quiet. Everyone was wearing masks. I had to get the train to Barry home because there's a station further down the road in Panath that I could jump off at. And um, it was busy. No one was wearing masks. They all had them hanging around their neck so they could put them on at Barry Station because that's mm. where they find you if you're not wearing a mask. Yikes. Yeah, I was in Home Depot uh, and there were just... So people that haven't visited me just asked me about Jersey Shore because uh, before I came down here, I thought that it was a bunch of Italians that had terrible tans, guys with massive muscles that were just dumb meatheads, but... I've seen maybe five of those types down here. And uh, when I was the one time I was at Home Depot, I saw a guy that looked like he should be on Jersey Shore with his friend. One had a mask pulled under his nose. One didn't really have one on. And in my head, I'm just like, you you guys are fucking idiots. Like, look at the look at the death, uh, the percentage of people that get sick. Um, even though the death rate isn't super high, like we don't know the long-term effects of this. It's scary. Yeah, um, and I think I think a massive mistake at the beginning was saying, "Oh, young people don't get affected." Um, young people maybe don't die as much as other people, but that's like I've seen people on Twitter who are my age who are two, three months on after having it can't walk up a flight of stairs without getting exhausted. Mm. Um, I've, yeah, I, I've had two friends my R8, all of us are the same age basically that have had it and one of them has a two year old daughter that had it, they're all fine now but it's you, to, to, to act like you know what's going on is silly because not even people that have studied this shit, you know, diseases or whatever there's, there's no you know, vaccine yet for a reason we or learn it about as it goes along. So moving on, let's talk about, let's get back to writing. Uh, Brennan, how about you uh, awkwardly segue us back? As as awkwardly as humanly possible. Um, You know what? Before we completely move on, I would add one more thing to that conversation. Um, Sure. I I would just say there's nothing more indicative of like modern society, whether it be in New Jersey, Massachusetts, or (laughs) Wales and England. Um, and England, by the way, Al, not in England. Yeah, yeah. Um, just, just to clarify. <laughs> I thought you um, said that. I was like, what the fuck, man? Yeah. <laughs> just no, I, about I, this. We yeah, just yeah, said kind this. Of mumbled there, so I wanted to be very clear. Uh, there's just nothing more indicative of society than just the fact that we got tired of a pandef- uh, pandemic. So we decided it was, you know, for all intents and purposes over and that we could battle it yeah. by wearing masks around our neck and by putting in the bare minimum of, of effort. Um, and there was one more point that I've forgotten. So now I'm going to awkwardly segue actually kind of back into editing a little bit. Cause I said, I wanted to talk about that list of words that, uh, you, you put forth, um, and you already highlighted that. So you, you, you kind of classify extraneous words that you find in a lot of writing as either killer or filler. So could you take us through that a little bit? Yeah, so um, I, got it. I got the list somewhere here. I can't remember all the words off the top of my head. But basically, killer word is what that like stunts the sentence. Um, so it'll affect the flow of the sentence and um, 
really stands out. Um, and then a filler word is a word that's just not necessary. Um, and like, uh, they probably, they're probably words that we're used to using because, and they do tend to get overused a lot. Uh, that then is another one. You don't need then. In, you don't need to say then he opened the door. We know that it's happening. We know that it's the next thing that happens because it's described immediately after the previous action. Um, he turned around and then opened the door. You don't need the then. Um, whatever it is. Um, I got it. Two seconds. Cause it's, I have a cork board, but it always falls behind my desk. And my desk is very full. There we go. So, if I can get them. So this is my handy little list of, I don't know if you can see that very well. Oh, no, I just disappeared. Um, so I've got a little list that I keep next to me, basically. Mm-hmm. So, um, killer words, suddenly, is another one that really annoys me. <laughs> if I see suddenly, because it, it doesn't add anything. And I think that's what um, can be said about a lot of these words. They don't add anything. Um, so, like, filler words here are just, quite, rather, perhaps, actually. Um, killer words, kind of, started. This is one thing I noticed a lot. Started to. How do you start to walk? You're either walking or you're not walking. <laughs> um, or she started to stand. Okay, if they get interrupted and someone grabs them by the shoulder and shoves them back down, I can understand that. But if she starts to stand, she's either going to be standing or not. Um, and I think if writers can remember little things like that, like when you read through your work, actually try and picture something like that. If you say someone started to do something, consider whether or not they would... St- you're either eating or you're not eating. You're either doing something or you're not doing it you're not starting to do something you might start a book that's fair that's different but you don't start to read you either read or you don't well read then go on twitter and maybe play a game on your mobile then maybe read a bit um (laughs) but yeah it's little words like that i think if they're things i always try and look out for when i'm editing someone's work um and normally you can see them because they do stand out and they are I think one thing as well is if you know what words you're looking for just use little tricks read the sentence out loud to yourself um, drop the word and then if it still makes sense just delete it yeah um, in regards to filler words now uh, I'm going to bring up Ken McKinley because if we don't mention him on every episode he doesn't cut Patrick and I royalty checks we get um, fine. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, he he said to me um, in regards to that, that we uh, newer writers especially have a tendency to write the way they talk. And I, I feel like if we, you know, if we took the transcript of me asking questions and making statements on here, there's going to be so many that's so many um, just all of those filler words, justs, varies, quites, um all those little things that are just completely extra and unnecessary. Um, and looking at it that way, you know, in addition to reading out loud, 
was a huge, huge help in me just kind of going over and rereading my own stuff and removing that extra nonsense. Um, and I think that tip you you gave is perfect. Uh, read it without if you if you think that you might have an extraneous word in there, take it out, read it out loud. And if the sentence doesn't sound like it was cobbled together by a two year old, then it's probably fine. Um, in regards to the killer words, now you have a list, but I have to imagine it's not an exhaustive list. Do you kind of find more of those and um, even ones that aren't always killer words just by reading out loud? Or do you have other uh, methods of tracking those down? Um, I think it's, I think when you, like, basically I've been reading other people's work and critiquing work since I started writing a little bit after I started writing. So I joined Fiction Press and fanfiction.net back when I was like 11. Um, and one aspect of that was feedback, was reviewing other people's work. But I noticed that other people were reviewing mine in terms of, at the time I didn't realise it was in terms of critique, but that's what they were doing. And they would, that's how I learned to write. That was how I learned how to format dialogue. Um, that's how I learned that you actually put a comma at the end, not a full stop, and then you have a lowercase s, because that was nothing I, I was ever taught in school. We weren't taught grammar in school to that extent. Um, so I think when you start, the best thing as a writer, one of the best things you can do as a writer is give other writers feedback. Is Once you start looking at other writers' work in a, with a critical eye, um, you start noticing it in your own writing as well. So, like I said, I've been doing that since I was, like, 11, 12. Um, and then, obviously, at university, you do the seminars where you do go into that in more detail. Um, and then I joined Scribberfile when I came out of university. Um, so, it's always something I've done. And when you when you know to look for, like, the tip about taking that out was actually something that I was taught at university. And they gave us a list of words, of editing words. And they basically said to us, when you're editing your work, do control F on these. Check where you're using them. Um, that's how I learned to do that. And I think sometimes when you're reading something with the intent of providing feedback or editing it, something else might jump out at you and you might think that doesn't sound right. Um, or it might just flow a bit off. And then, yeah, you can just do the same thing. You can take that word out. Um, she began to began to fall in the same line as started to. So rather than she began to walk, you know, you can just say she walked or whatever the action is. Um, and even things like using action beats instead of speech tags or, you know, using speech tags sparingly, not only like, yes, use she said, he said. Don't start saying she yelled threateningly or, you know, that's what annoys me as well. One of the things on here that is a filler word is any word ending in L-Y. So any adjective like that just, and obviously that doesn't mean that every single sentence has to be passed back. It doesn't have to be sparse. It doesn't have to be short. But you don't want a sentence to be longer than it has to be. Um, And yeah just like if you she's like speech tags as well i remember you know being in school and being told don't you said don't ever you said use other words you know use descriptive words to describe what they're saying it's like 
No, because said melds into the rest of the writing. It's non-intrusive. Um, the same with certain... Um, like, it's like the same as overusing exclamation points. They start to stand out and not in a good way. Uh, the full stop, you just you, you get used to seeing it. But then if you use an exclamation point at the end of every single sentence, it loses its power, essentially. Yeah. No, I find that um, if I'm using said, I'll, most of the time it's to kind of convey in a in a in dialogue where there's more than two people speaking it's i'm using it to help the reader keep track of who's talking at a given time um and if i want to say that they yelled or that they spoke quietly or yelled threateningly or whatever um i i try my best to make that more evident in the dialogue than in than by just straight out saying oh look they're yelling exclamation point yeah, which is exactly what it should be done. Um, said should be used if you don't have an action beat. Um, if you've got a dialogue between two people as well, um, you don't need speech tags. If it's just a conversation between two different characters and there's no one else in the room, you can just have it between the two of them. Um, but yeah, action beats are good. He said, she said is great. It's useful. It tells the reader what they need to know and know more. And you're right. If, if you need to convey that they're shouting, I mean, even things like sh- they whispered or they shouted, again, you sparingly, they work really well. But yeah, if it's conveyed in the dialogue, that's when it's most effective. And I think I think a lot of that comes from writers underestimating their own abilities um, and not trusting in themselves or in their readers. The same as I hate italics. I I think um, italics need to be used very carefully and with a very good purpose. One of the biggest things I'll say to writers, if I'm giving them feedback, it's why is this in italics? Really think about it. If you're using it for emphasis, it doesn't work. Because if you're using it for emphasis, I might read a sentence different to how Pat reads it. Um, and if I think, if I read a sentence and I feel like the emphasis should go on the third word, but the writer has forced it into the second word, that's going to put me off. Because that's not, like, everyone has their own natural speech patterns, everyone has their own ways of reading things. And forcing that emphasis means that either you're not confident in your writing or you're not confident enough in your readers to read what you want them to read. Good points. Um, also, one more thing. I- Apologies if we covered it. Tautology, uh, example. He nodded his head. The, the uh, something like that. I only got one example on the top of my head. What do you do? You see that a lot? Uh, not that often, actually. Um, I think a lot of people just stick to he nodded. I think. I think the thing with gestures like that is that characters do them a lot. Probably more than we we would in real life. Um, and the amount of times I've sat here and I, I'm writing something and I'm kind of doing like, how would I be doing? I'm like, yeah, but I'm nodding, okay, yeah, and doing the gestures myself. And I think, but how often would you? How often do you actually nod at someone? Like, obviously in this conversation, I'm nodding, but Pat's nodding now. But you're not. It's not just a. Brennan's giving us the constant, finger. yeah. <laughs> 
And, he's not. But even when that's people nod, they don't that's, just that's untrue. nod. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> even no. when people nod, they don't just sorry, it's, they don't just nod once. They it's a lot. And now that I'm doing it, yeah, one nod invade. seems that seems weird but to do. Aggressive. Like an yeah. acknowledgement, though, but that's that that's you know, uh, that could be part of that storytelling aspect. If I if I sit here and I nod my head back and forth, then I'm you know continually acknowledging what you say. If I give you one quick nod, it's just you know it it says something totally different. What it says, I don't know. Uh, but it's definitely a very different gesture Good that can job. be interpreted in different yeah. ways. That's all I see is like. Good job, kid. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so we all know uh, that now. I don't. I don't know if we've really talked about something that uh, I think all of us love. Is you talked about how S.H. Cooper is one of your. Um, you're quite frankly, I think, one of her biggest fans, and like where all three of us are a fan of her work. But one thing I would love to talk about is her upcoming collection that I just finished this morning. I'm not even saying this because, like, we're talking about it on the show. It's There's no fillers. There are no killers. Except there are killer killers. There's no killer All killer, no filler. There we go. Nailed it. Thank you for saving me. That's not right at all. (laughs) So my whole point was this collection is amazing. Every story is great. Can you talk to us about how it started on your end as the editor? Because you did a hell of a job. I only noticed – Nothing wrong with it. <laughs> that um, wasn't an awkward sentence at all. <laughs> yeah, I don't know where I was going with that. My brain does tricks where it's like, shut the fuck up, but the other side keeps telling me to keep talking. Someone edit this out. <laughs> Go ahead, Else. Save me. Um, so I started working with Sarah last year. Um, I think I was. I tweeted about the veterine thing and she contacted me and quite frankly i was like wait hang on this is this is the woman who who writes call in darkness mm-hmm. um which is a podcast home and Gemma and more do and i was like she doesn't need my help editing well she's great she's a really good writer anyway <laughs> and um she sent me over the festering ones mm-hmm. so i started going through that and we i worked on that with her um and she was really happy with with what i was doing um she said that she she thinks um it was it was polishing basically like her writing is really good anyway her writing is really strong um but it's just really minor thing like yeah taking out killer and filler words and uh making suggestions and stuff um so we did that and that came out last year then she contacted me about the knight's daughter and I worked on that, I think it was the end of last year or early this year. Um, anyway, and then during lockdown, she emailed me about All That's Fair. Um, and I think some of them are, stuff, are stories that were previously on the No Sleep Forum. Um, and she was telling me, you know, she was writing so many new ones for it. But she sent me over the initial 10, I think it was. Um, and I went through that. Um yeah, I just edited it. Um, but her writing's really good anyway. It it needs really basic editing to it. Um, she makes my job very easy. <laughs> um, and 
it's always a joy to read her work because um i think every single the, the three i've worked on i've i've now read everything she's published every book she's put out either through editing it or from picking up a copy and then reading it um so the two i didn't do were corpse garden and from twisted roots which are quite frankly really really good short story collections um all that's fair is the first short story collection i've worked on for her um and i'm really excited for that to come out because everyone i've seen who's read it is like it's one of those books because i've seen it because i've worked on it I, I i feel really proud of sarah and i feel really proud of the book and it's great to see like that sort of reception for something that i believe in mm-hmm. as well like and i feel like that about the festive ones and the night sorter um i feel like that about other clients that I have when I see their sort of their works going out into the world I feel really proud of them because I think as a writer it's it's hard to put yourself out there and when you get that whether you're self-publishing a book and you're getting like really positive reviews on it or you're getting short stories accepted um I know me and Sarah are really close now through me doing the work and I'm, I'm always there to cheer on I'm always there to tell her no your writing's really good don't again go back to reviews don't read the reviews because one slightly negative review doesn't really mean anything compared to having you know five positive like glowing reviews before the books even come out agreed i like your friendship with her you guys are just like it's like you guys grew up together uh but let's talk about all that's fair a little bit as far as stories go obviously don't spoil them but uh do you have a favorite or a group of favorites? Um, I really like so much filler. I think that was a really good one. I could really. Woman. Yeah, I loved that one. Yeah. That was uh, I. I typed up a review last night, and I, you know, named a couple that I felt like had um, really good and unique monsters, a few that kind of um, followed a theme that I saw throughout and then named a couple favorites. And I got to the end of that. I'm like, and there's like 10 stories I still want to tell you about, but um, the, the filler one that absolutely, I loved that one. Uh, I was more than a little misty by the time the credits rolled on that one. <laughs> yeah. I'm the, um, I try, I'm really bad at thinking of short story names. Um, I've usually got to have like, the, the collection next to me so I can check it if I'm writing up reviews. Um I really like the the legend of the is it the legends of the tiger? Um that's not uh, in this one. Was it in a previous collection? Yeah I got the table I got the thing right in front of me. Yeah so um let me see if I can pull it up on Did you have any it's uh were you, were you the cause for Twelve Hands? That story titled Twelve Hands, did you have any no, is is that the one that's set in the UK? Yeah, I it, when I read that, only because I have insider knowledge of talking to you so much, I was like, hmm, was Elle the one that started that? Because it seems like a story that would be based in Welsh Welsh history, and uh, yeah. it's, it it gave me ideas about Saint David's Day, about one of your stories. Yeah, and. When I read that, I I was messaging her when I when I was reading it, and um, to be honest, I was saying to her like I 
am thoroughly impressed by how British that story reads. Um, <laughs> which, nothing against you Americans, but that's not something you have often. Um, you know, normally it's... Uh, normally, if you see an American writing a British character, you would have. To, I would have had to have made a lot more changes than I actually made to that story. Um, but like, even I think it was when I think she says maths in it or something. And as soon as I saw maths, I was like, "Oh my god, it's British!" You you had a similar comment about Paul Tremblay, right? And I think it was a Welsh character in Survivor's Song. Oh uh, yeah, he's got like a British character in that. Oh um, British, okay. My, my apologies. Yeah, English. I think. But yeah, it comes across really well. What can uh, American I, writers do to adopt, besides obviously Google and Word and stuff, what is your advice for American writers to actually write realistic UK-based characters? Um, I think it's, I think it comes down to just making the effort. I think when you, like, um, Sarah has. And like Paul Tremblay, I think when you see authors do that, it it's because it it's almost like respectful, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and like it just it's a little bit of research. Like if you've got friends who are from that part of the country, maybe check things with them. Um, I think Sarah was expecting a lot more corrections on that story, uh, but I didn't really have to make any in terms of British and American thing. I think one or two I said, oh wait, no, a British person would say this. Um. But I think as well, being aware that someone from Bristol will not speak the same as someone from London, just like someone from Cardiff doesn't speak the same as someone from Newport. Uh, North Wales speak very different to South Wales. I mean, even in South Wales, Swansea, Cardiff and Newport are three South Wales cities. We all sound massively different from one another. Um, and just being aware of like things like slang, um, one of the biggest things that'll trip you up is things like jumper and sweater. Oh, we don't say sweater. Is that the same thing? Yeah. As jumper? Uh, yeah. That's new so, to me. <laughs> um, even I mean, there's lists online as well of like American versus British spelling, mm-hmm. or even watch some YouTube clips to mm-hmm. try and get a hang of the accent. Um, so. If you have, I mean, if you have a conversation, you know, like obviously not everything's written in dialect, and that's fine. But if you have a conversation where a British character says, "Calls, uh, I'm going to my math class," that's going to really stand out to American uh, to a British reader. Same as like if if I called it a sidewalk instead of a pavement, that would be really strange. Um, and I think. Even sometimes you can utilize it because, I mean, when I was a teenager, my friends used to take the mic because I was so used to, like, listening to American punk rock bands. I used a lot of American, like, Americanisms when I was a teenager. Um, And then that, like, my friends used to say to me, stop saying awesome. (laughs) You don't need, like, I said it all the time because I picked it up from what I was watching, what I was listening to, things like that. Um, awesome. So you can you can even make it. It's like um, during Hamilton, the awesome. Yep. Wow, that line yeah. had me cracking up because that was like 
that is literally if you're british that's what you think of when you think of americans um <laughs> it's that kind of it's stupid because like obviously like every every american person i know has a different accent for another right but when you say like oh my god the americans it's that kind of i, I think it's like the valley girl accent yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's when you say, if you say space ghetto in a Scottish accent, I think is it space ghetto? It's no, if you say space ghetto in a Valley Girl accent, it sounds like you're saying Spice Girl in a Scottish accent. And that's probably one of my favourite things. Um, so, one, I, I was going to say, one thing I would add as a completely non UK person is, um, you you prob if you're writing a British character, you probably want to know what uh town, city, area they're from. And the example I'll give you is I, you know, kind of just randomly threw in a character I was writing. I, I had an idea of what they'd sound like and I said, Oh yeah, they're from Bristol. And then I looked up a Bristol accent and I said, Nope, that's not even <laughs> close to what I'm what what I'm thinking that this character sounds like. So I had to kind of look at different regions and nail down the one that um, that uh, they were from, and it turns out they were Scottish, not even from the same country. <laughs> yeah, and it's one thing when I was watching I Zombie, um, Ravi in that is British, but even I think normally if you see an American TV show and there's a British character, it's normally like Emily and Friends. It's a very posh character with received pronunciation, and no one in this country speaks like that unless they, unless they come from money, basically. Um, and I was actually amazed to find out the actress was actually British. But then you look at someone like iZombie, where Ravi is from London. Um, he has a London accent. His humour is very British. Uh, there's the, in, the the actor who was King Arthur in Merlin pops up in it. He's another British actor. And when they meet for the first time, they go, oh, you're from this part of London. Yeah, you're from this. Because London has different accents. Yeah. A Londoner could probably tell you where each, where they could be in a room full of other Londoners and probably tell you where each person is from. Um, and their first conversation is about the football teams they support. And it felt really real and really natural because that's exactly what, even if you don't follow football, if you meet someone, when I meet someone from, I don't like football, but one of the things I take the mick out of Rich all the time is because he supports Swansea. Um, whereas, you know, I'm from Cardiff, so my dad wasn't happy when we met because of that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and it doesn't help that Rich is actually te- technically, Rich was born in England, um, which is funny because we'll say that. I'm Welsh, he's English, but I sound English and he's like bad. he's got a Welsh accent. So his national football team is England. So I when I first started seeing him, I go to my dad and be like, Yeah, so um he supports Swansea. And my dad just looked at me and went, oh. and then I was like, and nationally he supports England. Oh like you would have thought I was dating like some criminal or something <laughs> just from my dad's reaction, because that's the football teams he supports. Which doesn't affect anything. Have you seen Green Street Hooligans with Elijah Wood and the dude from uh, no, Sons of Anarchy? Yeah, Charlie. No, Holmes. I haven't. I fucking love that movie. It's I don't know how 
besides what, videos I saw um, of riots after football games and that movie, my interpretation in my dumb American brain is football games over there get super crazy. People beat the shit out of each other, and I don't know if that's accurate at all. Um, when I was a teenager, my parents asked us not to go into Cardiff if Cardiff and Swansea were playing football. Because oh. um, the fans would just kick off at one another over nothing. Which is weird, because then you go to rugby, which is like it's quite an aggressive physical game. Mm. And you go to rugby during the national games, like England-Wales rugby, the atmosphere in Cardiff is amazing. Um, and it's, you know, everyone has a joke and a laugh with each other, no matter who wins. That should be um, the thing. That should be how it always is. Yeah, but with when it comes to football, it's just the rivalries just get ridiculous. It's just out of hand, and it's yeah. And then you've got like certain teams like Manchester United, who people support across the UK, but if if you support a different team, you hate Manu. Um, <laughs> I th- the same is probably the same from speaking to my friend at work, who actually supports Man United and the Patriots. <laughs> I think it's the same kind of thing where it's a team that wins so often. They did. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Tom Brady left, so <laughs> the most the most I know about Patriots is like picking up bits from you, uh, that documentary about that player. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, Matt in work. Um, but yeah, like it's when the team wins that often. There's a like there's a lot of random people who are like oh. I hate you because you support a team that wins. Like, well, it's not them. You know, they're not playing. They're not choosing the players. You're just spectators, which is fine. Everyone has a thing. Sports, sports makes you happy. Great. But I don't understand the people who get so worked up about sports that they get like really depressed if their team loses. Yeah, I um, yeah. So as you just said, I'm a New England Patriots fan, born and raised in Massachusetts. Moved to South Jersey, which is Eagles country for the most part, which is a Philadelphia-based team. There's also, it, it's weird. It's like a mixed bag down here. It's mostly the Philadelphia team, which is the Eagles. You got New York teams, the biggest one, the biggest pain in the ass is the Giants. The strangest part, I've had after the, okay, so the Eagles beat the Patriots a few years ago in the Super Bowl. I wear my Boston gear whenever, because I, I mean, that's who I support. That's who I've always supported. And I was in, again, Home Depot with my wife just looking for stuff. I hear someone go, boo. I look up. It's this dude in Eagles gear. I'm like, your team beat mine. Fuck off. (laughs) Was it Rich Duncan? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Rich Duncan looked at me. He's like, boo. I I wasn't (laughs) even looking at you. And this guy wasn't even near me. He looked at me, basically shouted it. And I've had... I wear this one jersey of it, mainly of this player named Rob Gronkowski. He's he's liked by most fans because he's just a party boy that he's a big goofy kid, and he's really good at his position. And I walked into this liquor store one time, and uh, these guys with New York Giant uniforms just started talking trash, and I'm like, I'm just trying to get beer. Like fucking leave me alone. Like I'm a big guy, so I don't know if that has anything to do with it, but. I don't partake in the – I get emotional with it. Like I get I, – I like yell at the TV. That's the worst I do. I don't hit my TV. I don't break shit. When the game's over, I'm like, well, whatever. I didn't lose money. I didn't gain money. <laughs> so I don't yeah. get it. 
this is like so, my dad's a massive Man U fan, so I'm used to him. They, and again, it's thing. It's weird that them and the Patriots, from what I understand, they seem to like um, parallel each other. So up until a few years ago, Alex Ferguson was the manager of Manchester United. He was brilliant. He was really good. Um, he bought people. I I know nothing about football, but I've seen exactly where Man U have gone wrong, and it's because. Ferguson bought young players up and he trained them. And then since he's gone, they just seem obsessed with buying players and bringing players in. It's like, no, get the freaking under-18 squad and train them. Focus on them. Focus on the next generation. But they've not been as good since Ferguson left. So, yeah, I'm used to my dad being, like, wound up and stuff. But then he'll sit down and have a beer and watch a film. Like, it doesn't matter at the end of the day. And he knows that. And my my dad's a lifelong Man U fan. He loves football, but even he was saying, "I if football doesn't come back, that's not a bad thing because they're all overpaid anyway." Um, the way he saw it when football stopped over here, he was just like he missed it. But he said football players get paid way too much for what they do anyway, Agreed. compared yeah. to everyone. You know, we could live without football. We could live without EastEnders or whatever other TV programs would have been on filming at the time we couldn't live without the, the least the most underpaid people in our society social workers people in the military police officers firefighters emts teachers to name a few <laughs> and i would echo that i'm you know a, a huge football fan i love i love my baseball but i'm watching them yes sorry, american <laughs> football um fucking idiot and- <laughs> Add to your visual of, you know, uh, British football of the, you know, the the tough people in the street beating the hell out of each other and singing the I'm forever blowing bubbles song. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But to to my to my original point before I got called a fucking idiot, um, the (laughs) the (laughs) baseball season that's going on now. I mean, you've got you've already got three, four teams who have been shut down at least temporarily because of virus spreading. And it's just, it's not worth it. I love, I love my Red Sox. I love baseball. And I just, I'm, I can't watch it because it's, I just, I hate the way that it's being forced to operate to, you know, fake a sense of normalcy. Um, I wouldn't be shocked to see the football season get canceled, but I also wouldn't be shocked to see them push it through with minor, restrictions that aren't really going to add much to it i mean they've already the date has already passed where players can opt out of the season um they announced it on a tuesday said you gotta opt opt out by like thursday at four and it's it's gross um and it's just it's like i said they're just running it with some semblance of you know visual safety but at the end of the day you're going to have uh people get sick especially you look at baseball there's no sport that's better set up for social distancing and you've still got teams dropping like flies um now this all stemmed off of a comment about how good sarah cooper is at writing british stories despite the fact that she lived in florida so i'm gonna i'm gonna bring it back real quick if you guys are cool with that yeah yeah what are your favorite stories from that collection all that's fair so i mentioned that I, oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were asking me, but let's ask Elle because, you know, she's an actual guest and not the uh, long-winded co-host. No, it's, it's fine. Um, like I said, I think, yeah, so much filler. The Olympia woman, 12 pounds. 12 pounds is really good. Um, 
yeah, and I think overall, I think it's just a really strong collection. But yeah, Brennan, what were your what were your favorites? Oh, thank you for asking. Um, so I, I would actually agree with with those. I I thought the Limping Woman was it was a really really good story on its own, but I thought it was the perfect choice to lead it off. It um. I, I am such a sucker for collections having a good first story. I really feel like making that good first impression is so important. And even if a collection or an, an anthology is overall pretty good, like I've already kind of made a judgment if the first story doesn't work just based on how the curating or the editing is, is, is done. Um, referring to like, you know, an anthology where part of putting that together is not just selecting the stories, but selecting the order, making sure it's, it's very even. Um, and the other one I would absolutely add to it is I loved the crones wood. Um, I, I thought the way that that flipped the table on me and, you know, just went in a direction I wasn't ready for. I thought that was fabulously done. Um, and I, I would also add, I mean, I've had her books on my Kindle like forever and I'll like move them to the top of the list and then, you know, get distracted by something shiny and not get to it. And pr pretty much as soon as I finished this one, I opened up, um, I got going on the festering ones and I was I reading that. page one. Sorry, go ahead. I love festering ones. Oh my God. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I was reading page one and I had, you know, children running circles around me and I had to read like the first page several times and I'm thinking I'm going to have to put this down. Like I, I, I can't focus on it right now. And I got to like page two or three and the description of like the hole opening up and the spider woman coming out. And I'm like, okay, you know, like you guys are going to have to go do something else because I can't put this down now. <laughs> I have no choice but to continue reading this. <laughs> yeah, that was so that was the first one I edited for her. And it was just like, I love it so much. Um, and I think Faith is such a brilliant character. I know she's planning two now. I can't wait. And I, to be honest, I'm honored because I get to read them before everyone else. And I, I, I'm doing them and I'm like, I can't believe she's paying me to do this. This is like amazing. Um, and she's probably my biggest advocate for stop undercharging. As she says to me, stop undercharging because you, you charge too little for it. Um, but what you're saying about anthologies and about editing them, um, I'm reading a vampire anthology at the moment that's edited by Paula Garan, Garan um, who is one of my favorite editors along with Ellen Datlow. And the, what she did with that is all female authors, um, but the stories are arranged chronologically. Because it's vampires, it can obviously take place at any point in history. So, like, the first story is, like, um, I think the, oh, the first or second story is, like, the Tudor period. And then it works up through. And I think that was, when I read that in the forward, that's how it was arranged. I was like, that is such a clever idea for this sort of anthology where it's arranged in when the story took place. Um, but yeah, I think you're right. I think when, Ed, like, that's why, like, Ellen Datlow and Paul Grant, every single anthology I pick up that they do is amazing. It's, it's a definite skill. It's not as simple as picking good stories and making sure they don't have a bunch of errors in them. Um, and, and yeah, the whole chronological thing, um, I, I agree with that. 
Um, but yeah, it's it's an art form, basically making a group of stories. And again, this is true whether it's a whether it's one author or whether it's a collection of a variety of authors, but um, making making the anthology, making the group of stories essentially tell a story in and of itself, you know, mostly revolving around themed anthologies like the one you mentioned. Uh, and if it's even if there's good stories, if that aspect of it is not done well, it detracts from the overall quality of what you're reading. No question. Yeah. I'm just going to yeah. add in two stories that I liked on top of the Limpin' Woman, which I agree with all your points, is Vermelda, which was... Oh, yeah. Just a... I don't, I don't know how to describe it without ruining it. It just... It was creepy. And um, All Will Be Forgiven, which is the third to last story, basically will make you not look at cats the same way again and creep you out. Um uh, S.H. Cooper has a way of describing things, and she plays with your senses, and it's just enough to reach the max capacity of creeping you out and then saying, all right, we're done, and then yeah. ends it very well. Um, so is there any stories or books that you're reading right now, Elle, that you would recommend to anyone? Um, not horror, but I'm reading at the moment. I'm in partway through. Cinderella is dead. Um, What's that? It's like a YA fantasy, but it's brilliant. Um, it's a yeah, it's a fantasy land where Cinderella died. I think 200 years before. But the idea is that all the girls have to be have to go to this ball, and they're picked out by men. Um. And it's a, it's a world where men rule. It's it's almost like a YA fantasy Gilead, like Handmaid's Tale, where mm-hmm. women have specific roles they have to follow. They have to really push. Uh, they go to this ball. Um, yeah, and that if if you're into like YA fantasy and stuff, that book is brilliant. Um, so that's what I'm reading at the moment. Um, I just finished The Hunted uh, by Gabriel. Let me just check how his surname. Um, yeah, Gabriel Bergmoser, which is like Australian horror mm-hmm. um, slash thriller. Uh, that was really good, actually. Um, and it kind of, I'll, when I write my review, you guys will probably see this, but there was, I, it's one of those books where I think if a different author had handled it, um, the way it goes, you kind of half expect the female character in it to actually have sex like to face sexual assault and she doesn't and it's a really small point but i feel like so many authors rely on that as a like um to happen to a female character but kind of when you when it doesn't happen it's like almost weirdly refreshing um but yeah that was a really good book um but yeah i think at the moment i'm i'm not reading a lot else that like really sticks out at the moment but yeah how about you brennan um i just wrapped up last night um alan baxter has a new book coming out at the end of the month um recall night it's a sequel to a book he wrote i think it came out last year um called manifest recall and it's kind of like that um you know jack reacher type badass main character but 
it's it's done in such an Alan Baxter way. So it has supernatural elements like the pacing and the fight scenes are just like absolute top notch. And the the thing that I get such a kick out of uh, with his writing on that is Alan Baxter is such a stand up guy. He's so like anti misogyny and he's writing this character that you would expect to be that, you know, uh, pillar of uh, toxic masculinity but he's doing it in such a way where this character is ridiculing other people who kind of embody that. Um, and it, it, you know, there, there's just little, they're, they're not overwhelming. Um, but there's just little hints of how, you know, that the author feels, uh, towards racism, towards sexism, towards, um, you know, displays of emotion and things like that. So you get this, you know, very, kind of archetypical character done in a really, really different way. Um, and for me, that's enough. That's a, that's a big enough selling point is it, it's just that 70% familiar, 30%. We've never quite seen it done like this before, but on top of that, like I said, it's, it's, it's a one day read, even at like 160 pages, you just, it's really hard to put down and do, you know, responsibilities and things you're actually supposed to do. Uh, what are, what are you in the middle of right now, Pat? Well, I today I'm going to start uh, John F.D. Taft's The Fearing Blood and Brimstone. And then I'm finally going to dive into Bird Box <laughs> for the first time. Have you not read it? I haven't. Oh, my God. It, the book is, is so much better than the film. I and then, well, that and A Head Full of Ghosts I got to read because Brennan said that that those two books and Laurel Hightower's Whisper in the Dark are like his three his holy trinity of horror. So uh, whispers is amazing. I'm um, yeah. I'm gonna order Crossroads tomorrow. Uh, basically tomorrow I'm gonna no not tomorrow sorry later in the week I'm gonna be buying Crossroads, mm. uh, a knight's daughter because I don't have it in paperback and all that's fair because I don't have that in paperback. I want those three books in paperback. And I said to Laurel on Twitter, it's like, well, a little birdie told me that my name actually appears in all three. Because <laughs> um, obviously, ed- the edited buy. This is why I can get away with buying them because I'm not supposed to be buying books at the moment. Um, Rich keeps telling me about getting books. I'm like, I'm not getting them. I'm being sent them. Yeah. I'm not buying them. <laughs> this is where my three red pile is coming from. So I promise I haven't bought books for ages, but I need to buy these three because, um, yeah, obviously, Knight's Daughter and All That's Fair. I'm edited by, and then Crossroads. I think Pat, you showed me. Uh, I'm very, I was very overwhelmed. Show it to us, yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, that was like when I saw that. I, I think I probably, I was probably like, I, I think it was uh, probably not that long ago when like everything was making me cry, and I saw that, and I was just like, <laughs> oh my god, that's amazing. <laughs> to see, yeah, she shouts out to you, me, Ellen, Brennan, and the rest of our team. To see that, I'm like, okay, well. I think it's fair to say in a lot of people's opinion, she's someone that is clearly going to be one of the top dogs eventually. I mean, she's very, very good. I can't wait to read Crossroads. Yeah, the overall quality of that that book, I will absolutely take a mention in the acknowledgments. Yeah. So one last thing before we close this thing up. Um, A contest is being held 
for uh, at Deadhead Reviews. So I'll have the lady in charge of that tell you all about it. So the contest is um, sort of ties into our Monster Mash theme. Um, it's horror in Hollywood. Um, I was listening to the Secret History of Hollywood podcast, which is brilliant. Um, it talks a lot about the early days of Hollywood, the sort of formation of Warner Brothers. Uh, also, one of the podcasts talks about uh, Walt Disney going after communists, um, which was really good, um, and the whole McCarthyism era. And I was listening to these podcasts about sort of the goings on at Hollywood in the especially in the early days, um, and thinking about sort of. Hollywood is a really fascinating place and behind the glitz and glamour is there's a lot of darkness but when I was listening to the Warner Brothers podcast and things I was thinking like this would be a really good setting for horror um, and once we kind of came up with a theme and stuff that's when I found out that there are anthologies and I bought one of them, two anthologies um, around a similar theme as well um, but it, basically the theme idea came out of a really selfish place for me of me going, I really want to read horror set around this. So the idea of the contest is it's up to 4,000 words. Um, that means it can be anything from 100 words to 4,000. Because um, I think flash fiction can also be really powerful as well if it's done well. Um, set at any point in Hollywood's history, uh, present day or, you know, going back to the to the early days a bit. Um, but I think the responses on Twitter have been really good. I'm, I can't wait till we actually open up the entries and I can start reading them. Um, it's judged at the moment. The judges are me, Patrick and Cassie. Um, and if anyone listens to this thinks they want to have a go at judging as well, just drop me an email. I'm going to make sure it's not too overwhelming for people. Um, so my aim is I'm hopefully going to read every entry. Um, when they start coming in, the actual judges will start getting sort of batches of stories after the closing date. Um, so, yeah, I'm just really excited for it, to be honest. Um, I've had loads of really good feedback about the prizes we're offering as well. Because um, I think you try to go for prizes that will be good for published and unpublished authors. Um, obviously, uh, podcast spot. I think it's good for, for anyone in any position. Um, I'm offering editing for it as well. Um, yeah. So, yeah, and just um, whether it's people want to do, like, and I, I think I've said in the thing, um, you're welcome to cross genre. Um, just give us something that's exciting, basically, and that's good to read. And where can people find that, the uh, info on the contest? Um, so all the info will be at deadheadreviews.com. Um, I think I've spoken to Ellen about it as well. Um, we're going to open up entries on the 15th of September. And um, they'll be open from the 15th to the 30th. So we, we basically, the idea behind that is give writers enough time to write and edit. Um, and get their feedback on it mm-hmm. without overwhelming. Um, and then, yeah, um, we'll be looking. I think the timeline at the moment is to try and announce the winners in early 2021. Um, that should hopefully give us plenty of time 
to read it um, and judge it and things like that. But yeah, the information is deadheadreviews.com. Um, I can send you the actual link, Pat, if you want to put it in the show notes. Yep, that and your link to your website so people can check out all the services we talked about today. Yeah, so um, my two websites, I've got lturfit.com, which is my blog, uh, where I review books that aren't horror. Uh, and lturfitediting.com has got all the information. Uh, the editing website is linked on my actual website as well. Um, and obviously I'm on Twitter. So if anyone has any questions, they can always shoot me a DM on there as well. What's your um, handle? Lturpit, which is T-U-R-E-L-L-E-T-U-R-P-I-T-T. Uh, Turpit is spelled how it's said, basically. Just remember the double T. But probably if you search Turpit on there, I'm probably the only one who comes up as well. <laughs> Ellen, is there search- anything... I mean, Helen. We're talking about Ellen. Ellen. <laughs> Rude. Yeah, I mix, I mix them up sometimes because it's literally one letter off. Sorry, mm-hmm. L. Is there anything else that you want to talk about or let people know? Um, no, just make sure you read S.H. Cooper's work, Laurel Hightower's work, Jammer and Moore's work. They're all amazing authors. Um, read the fourth four. Uh, check out JSQ on Twitter as well. That's A-S-K-E-W because her short stories are fantastic. Um, I think she's an author that's going to go really far. Um, her, I've been working with her for a year now and her, every time I get one of her short stories, I'm just like blown away by it. Don't be assholes. Don't be racist. Don't be sexist. Don't be homophobic. It's really not hard. <laughs> read not... diversely. Read diverse books. And once you start doing it, you'll find it a lot easier to do so. I think I've read, I think last count, when I'd read 80, I've almost on track to finish 100 books this year. When I last checked, I'd read 82 books this year, uh, 41 of which, so I took out the anthologies from that 82, and 41 of those books were by women. Nice. Um, and that was a mix of you know, different diverse authors as well. Once you start, if you're not reading diversely, you are the only person who's missing out is you. Mm-hmm. So do that. Go check out some diverse books because, yeah, just widen your worldview. Brendan, you got any final words, sir? I do not. We even covered where can people follow you. Brilliant. Well, thank you, uh, L, for stopping by. Thank you, Brendan, for joining us again today. And everybody that listened, thank you and have a good day. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Have a good one, guys. Yeah, you too. We are in your mind. We are all around. You are now leading Deadhead Space.